remember learning a long time ago. It was a little bit of a surprise to me, but not a lot when I thought about it. I just hadn't put it in this sense. But I remember hearing someone say, anyone can find a problem. It's better when you can find a solution. Well, that's true. You know, you can walk down the street and see a problem here and a problem there and a problem over there and a problem down that way. There are problems everywhere. I would imagine if I asked you to name a few problems, you could name more than a few. Well, I get that. We all get that. Problems are what they are. They pop up all the time and we have to deal with them. And you know, the other side of that is, if we were as good at finding solutions as we are problems, we might not have as many problems. Well, anyway, we're going to talk about this idea of problems a little bit, and we're going to talk about the solution to it here on Faith Is. This is the place where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I pastor the church that you've probably heard me mention several times, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We are a real church, regular people, all trying to find our way, and we are finding our way because there is someone who points the way. He is the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we're going to talk and think and share together today like we usually do. I'm going to think out loud about some things, and I'm going to push you on a couple of things, and some of you are going to do your best to push back from where you are, and I'm happy for you to do that. But mostly what I want you to do is to hear what God says and not push back against what God says, but allow him to speak in a way that will help you. Too many times our problem is we, we think we know better than God, and we really don't. So anyway, where should we start? i got several things to talk about today. I want to, again, prod you to find a church. This is a great time of year. If you've been putting that off or, uh, heaven forbid, dreading trying to find a church, I, I get it. It's a kind of a social problem. It's not that easy to fit into a new group of people. Some of us find that harder than others, and, and some groups are easier to fit into than others. It's just a people thing. But I want to encourage you, this is a great time of year to find a church, because this is a time of year churches do special things. You might be able to go to a special program of some kind to kind of get acquainted. This is a time of year that people do show up to church if they don't show up any other time. Um, Sadly, you know, the whole business of people go to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter isn't all that far off. So you won't feel like you're such a, how should I say, novelty if you attend a church. And I realize it's just, it's just one of those things. But you need, to, you need to take the step, gather courage, step out. I want to talk about why that's important a little bit and encourage you to do it. And um, we did a special thing at our church here recently. We, earlier this year, we did it in one way, and then we revisited it this fall. Earlier in the year, I asked our church to identify the hymns that every Christian should know. And we took a pretty generous definition of what we meant by hymn. We didn't uh, narrow that down to a certain type of thing. We allowed people, in whatever way they felt comfortable, to to identify the hymn that they thought were hymns. And we had some long lists that every Christian should know. Well, at the time, I did say, and we did agree, that we wouldn't include our Christmas carols. 
We usually call them Christmas carols. Sometimes they're called Christmas hymns. Sometimes they're called Advent hymns, too. And I understand, and you understand some of those things. But I said at the time, earlier this year, to our church, that when it came time for this season of the year, we would make a special effort to identify the Christmas carols that we think every Christian should know. And again, it wasn't about our favorites. It was about the ones we thought everyone should know. So I've got a partial list of that for you today. Uh, we might, it, I, I think we will, next week take the next part of the list. And then I want to talk to us about this idea of a problem. And I want us to, to really focus on what God has to say to us, especially this time of the year, and, and really how it applies to the times we find ourselves living through. And I think it's words of great encouragement and help that God has for us. So where should we start? Well, why don't we start with those Christmas carols? Now, I said we identified the ones that we thought every Christian should know. And we didn't specify beyond that. We took a pretty generous idea of what we meant by Christmas carol. And and I, again, I encourage people not to choose their favorites. I mean, we all have favorites. You have favorites. I have favorites wonderful. But what are the ones that every Christian really should know? And so we came up with several, and I, you know, had to draw the line somewhere in tallying it. So we came up with 10. And so we have 10 Christmas carols that every Christian should know. So I thought this week we'd start with number 10, and I would just talk about them a little bit and help us think through that and see how that might apply to to our celebration of Christmas this year, and Advent as well. So coming in at number 10 was a little bit of a surprise to me, but again, I'm, I'm not looking for the ones that I think are popular or best. I'm looking for what our church thought. So this is a collective decision. I didn't influence it by, by telling them what to vote for or against. Well, I did in one case. I, I did say, when we were talking about this, I said, uh, look, you it's a generous approach to this, but please, nobody can choose, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. And nobody did, by the way. So we were all good on that. Well, at number 10 in our list, go tell it on the mountain. I was a little bit of a surprise. I didn't expect that. I kind of had a sense people liked that, but I didn't really think it would rise to the level of Christmas Carol every Christian should know. But it did. It's a, an African-American tune that that comes from. We don't really know other than that it's kind of a folk tune, don't have a composer associated with it. And similarly with the text, as with a lot of hymns, there's some uncertainty about these kinds of things, but we do know it was first published in 1907, and that a man named John Wesley Work worked on both the text and the tune. He was the guy who kind of pulled it all together in pretty much the format we have it today. And it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable tune in that it's cheerful, it's encouraging, it's admonishing, and it really proclaims the, the birth of Jesus. And it says to us, go tell it on the mountain. Go tell everybody, essentially. Go let people know that Christ is born today. And the emphasis on the birth of Jesus is important not just because that's the focus of the season, but it's important because, as I saw recently, one person kind of did a little analysis of this, and, and his conclusion was, if you wanted to sum up the gospel in one word, 
what would that word be? His conclusion was, based upon looking at the scripture, specifically the book of Acts, his conclusion is, the gospel in one word is Jesus. I think that makes a lot of sense. So go tell her on the mountain. Makes a lot of sense. Tell everybody that Jesus Christ is born. Number nine on the list. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Now this one really surprised me. Not for its number on the list. I mean, number nine or number five, it didn't matter to me. But I guess I was surprised it made the list at all. Because it's a little bit of an unusual type of song or hymn or carol. It's it's a type of music we don't sing very often anymore. It's still a type of music that is widely recognized as valuable in terms of Western music. But it's a chant. And we sing it a lot like a chant. Now, not 100%. We have trouble, and, and we don't worry about this at our church. We have trouble, we know, singing chant-like music because there's no beat to it. Well, we, we try to do that as best we can, but it's difficult, and it's not necessarily ruinous to put it, a beat to it. But it's a different type of music. It's, it's minor key. It's just a little bit different. And sometimes that stretches us, which, which is okay. And actually, the text comes all the way from the 12th century. It was first written in Latin. A man named John M. Neal did the translation, as best we can tell, in 1851. There are a number of verses we don't sing typically, but a, maybe three of the verses. It's just not something we've done. We could sometime. We just haven't. Uh, and I guess partly because it's different, partly because that's just kind of the way we have done things. But O Come, O Come, Emmanuel expresses this enormous longing for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of the one who would be with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And because of the way the text is written and because of the little different shape of the tune or sound of the tune, it sometimes stretches people and, and people will sometimes either like it or not. Well, I don't think that's the point here. You know, when we, when we go to church, we don't go to church to say, oh, well, I, you better play or sing or use music I like. That should not be our attitude at all. Now, I hope you like it in the sense that it's done well. I hope it has meaning for you. But I'm also pretty sure that on any given Sunday when you might go to church, they're going to use some music that you might say, oh, I can take that one or leave it. That's fine. You don't have to love every single song. The person sitting in front of you might think that's one of the greatest ones and they get a lot more out of it than you do. And really the point isn't getting out of it. The point is what we do to honor God. And even if we don't like something as our personal favorite, we can, we can allow ourselves to honor God with the singing of that, and we can give our friends, the people in front of us, behind us, beside us, the opportunity to have something that they really like used. And we can support that instead of saying, well, I didn't like that. They shouldn't do that. That's kind of a bad attitude. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is that we can either shrink from the kind of challenges that God gives us, even in the sense of going to church, or we can stretch toward them. And some of these particular musical styles require us to stretch toward them. And isn't that okay? 
Well, of course it is. That's what God wants to do. He wants to stretch us in his direction. That's what we want to do here. We want to stretch toward God's high calling because that's what he's called us to do and to be. So why wouldn't we stretch toward him? All right, number eight on the list is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, that's probably one people know far and wide in our country. It's very well known, very, very much appreciated. It's um, interesting that it made the list. I think it makes a lot of sense for a couple of reasons. One, and I'm not sure if our congregation really thought about this, but one is the text was written by Charles Wesley. And our church comes from the Wesleyan tradition of John and Charles Wesley. And Charles Wesley was one of the most prolific, maybe the most, English hymn writers in history. And so to have a text by Charles Wesley chosen wasn't terribly surprising. Um, The tune is a little interesting, but most of us don't make any connections with the tune. But it was written by a composer whose name you might recognize, but who you really wouldn't expect to be composing music for a hymn. It was taken from something else he wrote. He didn't write it just for a hymn. But his name was Felix Mendelssohn. It was written in the tune in about 1840, so it's been around a little while. And Charles Wesley wrote the words, and it was adapted. Oftentimes these words that hymn writers write are adapted to tunes, and that's what happened here. Interestingly enough, a man named George Whitfield, who was a contemporary of the Wesleys, altered the first line. And arguably, when you take a look at it, this Christmas carol that we appreciate so much and that our church says every Christian should know might not have even become one that we know at all, except that they changed the first line. And it was George Whitfield that said the first line should be, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And he introduced that concept to it. Now, it's also interesting, and I, I was, as I was looking at these hymns and were reading about them and checking on their background, and most of them don't have dramatic backgrounds and backstories about how they were written. But one of the things that was pointed out in, in some of the things I was looking at was how this story leads us through some very interesting theological understandings. So... First off in the first line, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Well, Christ became our king, becomes our king, is our king. Peace on earth and mercy, mild peace. The angels talked about that. And God is a God of mercy. And then it says, God and sinners reconciled. Well, that's the point, isn't it? For God and sinners to be reconciled. Joyful all ye nations. In other words, he didn't come for just a few. He came for everyone. Join the triumph of the skies again, another allusion to those angels, and with the angelic host proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Second stanza, Christ by highest heaven adored, again the angel theme carrying over, Christ the everlasting Lord, the reminder again that this baby Jesus is different from us. He's not a baby, he's Lord of heaven and earth. Long desired, behold him come. Well, people had longed for Messiah for a long time, but here he is. And finding here a home among us, a humble home, amazing that he came to live with us. And as the next line says of that second stanza, veiled in flesh, the God had say he came as the incarnate deity. He came in the form of a person. God became a human like us and was pleased to come to us. That next line says, pleased as man with man, men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God coming to be with us. 
Stanza 3 again talks about the heaven-born Prince of Peace, his deity. Hail the Son of Righteousness. It uplifts him as a distinct and different as God himself. Light and life to all he brings. That's what he brings, is life to us and sheds light in our darkness. And he brings healing, risen with healing in his wings. And so let us then with angels sing glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. And then it repeats that key line, God and sinners reconciled. So hark the herald angels made the list at our church of Christmas carols every Christian should know. That was number eight. Now, number seven. We have two to go. We're going to take five this week and five next week. Number seven is, O come all ye faithful. And again, can anybody be surprised this would make the list because it is one of the enduring admonitions to come all ye faithful. And it, it's again, it's an as, as you get the idea, these are not particularly new hymns. These have been around a long time. They have withstood the test of time. It's no wonder that people said these are the carols that every Christian should know. And this one was put together uh, in text. It was written, the text was written by a man named John Francis Wade in 1743, and it was first written in Latin. Now, now it's not unusual for our English hymns to be translations. A lot of times hymns are written by people first in another language, because that's their language, and then later it's translated. This one was first written in Latin, which probably wasn't John Francis Wade's native language, but he learned Latin because it was the it was the language of the church for many years. And then it was later it was translated by a man named Frederick Oakley. And interestingly enough, and this doesn't happen often, it happens sometimes, but the tune was also written by John Francis Wade. And so we have this great enduring idea, O come all ye faithful. And I like to use this one on Christmas Eve because it just seems to fit that particular time of year, but it's used all through the year because the hymn actually leads us to Bethlehem and then to the angels. And then finally, with that great proclamation that the word has become flesh, which connects to John chapter one, I'm sure you would make that connection. It's interesting that as I was reading about this, that the writer talked about how it this particular carol, and it's not the only one, of course, but it leads us to Bethlehem. And it reminded me that Bethlehem today is in the middle of all the Middle Eastern turmoil. In fact, I read recently that they've canceled some of the Christmas celebration in Bethlehem, partly out of security concerns, uh, maybe out of some other concerns as well. I'm not sure that I could say that uh, authoritatively, but it reminded me that Many years ago, when I had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land, that we had the opportunity to go to Bethlehem and see that traditional place where the church identifies as the birth of Jesus. Is that the place? Based upon what we know, probably not. It's just a traditional identification. And you walk in the church, and then you go forward to the front and down the stairs. And on the lower level is the spot that's been marked off and and kept carefully, uh, how should I say, honored as the place of Jesus' birth. And so when you make a pilgrimage to Israel, you tend to go there because that's the traditional site of that. As interesting to me, uh, maybe a little more interesting, 
I was fascinated to go see the original site because I'd seen that as a kid in pictures from people who had gone to visit Israel. And so it fascinated me to stand in that same place where those pictures had been taken, where those people that had that I knew had stood when they went to visit Israel. But as interesting to me as that was, we also went to what they called Shepherd's Field in Bethlehem. And that was really quite interesting because we, we read the story about the shepherds and the angels appearing to them. And I found some very interesting things there in visiting that field. Maybe we'll talk about those, but that takes us a little, little beyond where we are with this so come all ye faithful idea. Uh, we'll see about that if we come along. Okay, that was number seven. So number six, as we're counting it down from ten, so sh- should I review? Yeah, let's review to make sure we all know what we're talking about. We started out with Go Tell It on the Mountain at number ten. Number nine was O Come All Ye Faith, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Number eight was Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Number seven, O Come All Ye Faithful. And number six now is Away in a Manger. This is a well-known children's carol. People talk about that and understand that it came from children, and that's or came for children. It was originally written that way. Although I, I think by now it may have started out for children, but and and still children appreciate it. But I think an awful lot of adults do as well. I don't think it's uh, as exclusively for kids as it used to be. There's some uncertainty about who wrote the text of this one. Uh, a lot of times Martin Luther is given credit for that, and again it's. A long time ago, he lived from 1483 to 1546, but there's a lot of people that aren't sure he was the one who wrote the text. But even with the uncertainty and other possibilities, I don't think anybody really is prepared to say this is it for sure. The tune was written in 1887 or about 1887 by a man named James R. Murray, and it has lived on in our appreciation and memories. It's one of those one of those Christmas carols, one of those songs that none of us can remember learning. It's as though we've always known it. And that's not a bad thing. That's a that's a good thing. Um, it, it's just it just fits and it's just the right thing at the right time. Now you also might remember or realize that we have a kind of a traditional tune, but there are as at least one other tune, and it's true with a lot of these carols, other tunes are used. So if you hear it, this the words to another tune, uh, it doesn't mean they're messing up the Christmas carol. It just means there's an alternative. In fact, there's other tunes to some of these things that I like better than the ones we typically use. Um, but that's just personal taste. That's not better or worse. That's just who we are. So if you find that, uh, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. It just is what it is, and we can accept it for that. One of the things I like about Away in the Manger is it ends with that continuing idea that we need to keep in mind and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. The whole idea of Christ coming to reconcile people with God so that we could be reconciled to God, we could have peace with God, we could know God. And that's the same idea that we go back to Hark the Herald Angels sing, that it talked about God and sinners reconciled. That's the idea of what God is up to. So there's there's our first five. I'm not sure. We, we'll do some more next week. We had a few honorable mentions on our list because we just had too many uh, that, that really could make the list, but we had to stop somewhere. So we have some honorable mentions. We might do some of those next week. We'll see. But we'll we'll sure surely finish the list so I can give you the the five four three two one out of that.
And as we get closer to the end of that, just to give you a little hint, it was surprising to me how many of them tied, how many of them got the same number of votes. You wouldn't expect that with the number of people doing this. But anyway, there's a little introduction, introduction to the Christmas carols that our church thinks every Christian should know. I hope you know all of those. If you don't, get acquainted. Well, I've been pretty much a nag on this. Some of you might get tired of hearing it. I don't mean for you to get tired of hearing it. I guess I mean for you to understand how seriously I take this whole idea and how much I want to really, really, really encourage you to find a church. And I was doing some reading like I typically do because I think that's what helps me as I prepare for sermons and things like that. But I was doing some reading and I came across a an article that a guy wrote, a retiring pastor, he wrote it at the time he was getting ready to retire. He has since retired. And he he was identifying some reasons to go to church. It caused me to think about that. Well, what reasons might I give? And I wouldn't be prepared to say these next five things I want to suggest to you are the only reasons to go to church, or whether I will think they're the most important ones in a few days, because I might think this through differently. A couple of them, yeah, I think they, they would probably stay on my list. But since we're thinking out loud here on America Out Loud, we can we can think about these things and ponder them and kind of hold them loosely, except when one or two of them resonates with us. And maybe you need that to kind of anchor your resolve to find a church. And by the way, I'm not talking about just any church. I'm finding out, find the church that's closest to the Bible. You want to find a church that honors the authority of the Word of God. So here are five ideas, five potential reasons that that we should go to church why should why should i go to church number one when i go to church it demonstrates what matters in my life you know we do what matters to us and when i go to church it demonstrates my faithfulness and commitment to christ i don't know how many times i hear people say well i'm a believe in God, but I really don't go to church. Well, wonderful. I'm glad you believe in God. The demons even believe in God, by the way. But I want to know, I increasingly am interested in, are you faithful to God? And when we physically take ourselves to church, it demonstrates what matters to us. And what matters to us is faithfulness to Christ. That's the first reason why we should go to church. Second reason why go to church is kind of simple. You might be surprised. The church needs you. Well, of course they do. Why wouldn't they? Well, because the church needs people. It's not that the church wants to use you. I hope not. But they need you. And, and you know, when you go to church, you need to encourage someone. And that's one way the church needs you, because somebody at that church, at your church, needs your encouragement. What if you went to church every week with the idea that I need to find at least one person to encourage today? How might that change every church? And the second part of that is you need the church because there's going to come a time, and it may not be today, might not be tomorrow, I don't know when it might be, but there's going to come a time when you're going to need to be encouraged. And so when we go to church, the church needs you and you need the church because we need that mutual encouragement that encouragement to stay faithful, that encouragement to not be distracted by this or that or not focus on this circumstance or that circumstance, 
but to be encouraged and to keep our focus on the main thing. And the main thing being that there is a new king that has come to the earth. His name is Jesus. And he came to save his people from their sins. We say a lot of these phrases at Christmas time. And we need to remind ourselves and encourage ourselves in that. Number four, why should we go to church? Well, it's your weekly life reboot. I don't know how many times people have said to me, well, my phone's not working right or my computer isn't doing this or that. And I learned this from the people who know technical stuff way better than I will ever know it. But the first thing they always say is, when was the last time you rebooted? And I remember that when I have problems. I reboot my computer when it's not working like I think it should. Because typically I don't reboot it regularly. Maybe I should, but I don't. But going to church is your weekly life reboot. You can make your confession to God. You can confess the things that you know need to be forgiven. You can re-up your commitment. It's really a life reboot. And I think you should think about that. And the fifth one may surprise you, but uh, it surprised me a little bit that I put it on the list because it sounds a little bit, uh, well, I guess it's the plain answer to that. It sounds a little bit self-serving. But number five, why go to church? You need to hear the Word of God preached. Now you might say, well, I can read the Bible on my own. Yeah, you can, but do you? I can listen to other sermons from other pastors. Yeah, you can, but do you? What you need, what I need, is we need to go and hear someone who isn't us preach the Bible so we hear it differently. I've been to enough churches, enough sermons that they're not all the kind that ring my bell, shall we say, but I'm reminding myself and I'm learning that I need to hear the Word of God proclaimed, and so do you. Well, that's a lot of ground we've covered. We've got some more ground. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back in just a moment, so stay with us. I'm Pastor Rick. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. 
Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe, air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. listening to Faith Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and we here together stretch each other in God's direction, and we remind ourselves that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And a lot of what we do here is we think out loud together, and we're going to do that a little bit more in just a moment, but before we get there, I want to draw your attention to the America Out Loud Network. Maybe you've not looked into that, but I would encourage you to go to the website and look around. There's a bookstore there. There's another place to shop for wellness products and other things. And you might want to take a look at that and see if there's something there that can help you or your family. It's also Christmas present buying time. You might find something interesting and useful there. It's at americaoutloud.news. All one word, americaoutloud.news. Take a look, see what you find there. You just might find something worthwhile. And I hope you'll take a few minutes to check that out. You might get an idea that you never realized that that was available and it's helpful to you. Well, we want to take a look now at at the scriptures. And we use the scriptures in interesting ways various times during the year. And this is one of the times that we look at prophecy, particularly about the prophecy of the coming of Christ when he was born, but also the reminder of the prophecy that he will return again. And we don't focus on predictive prophecy for our times as much as we focus on the predictions being fulfilled in our times. And you may remember, it's happened quite a number of years ago, and I I always liked the space program. As a kid, I collected all the articles I could from newspapers. I'd cut clippings out and stuff like that. That was back in the day before there was all this digital stuff. And I remember following the program from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo. And I do remember, you probably do too, those iconic words spoken by James Lovell from Apollo 13. 
Houston, we have a problem. Well, as you may remember, the Apollo 13 was on its mission and there was an explosion that the astronauts recognized had taken place on their spacecraft and they realized that they had a problem to solve because of the damage that was done and here they are far from Earth, far, far away and now they have to find a way to return and see what they can do to get back to Earth. So they let Houston know that they had a problem and they began to go to work on solving that problem and the good news is that they did solve the problem and they made it home safely. Now in our day, we, uh, we sometimes say there's no problem here. You know, ask any man, all right? Ask any man, how are you? And the answer almost always comes back in one word, fine. I know that's what I say. People ask me, how are you? I don't really even give a thought to how I am when they ask that. Usually, I just say fine because all of us men, we're always fine even when we're not. But you know, the people on Apollo 13 realized that they had a problem and they needed help solving it. I think a lot of us realize we live in a world that has a problem and it needs help solving it. And so we need to take a look at what's going on. You know, if you ask somebody what's wrong in the world, they will, might give you an economic problem or some kind of social problem or political problem. But ultimately, I'm going to suggest that it's a spiritual problem. Many years ago, a man named G.K. Chesterton was well known for his witty writing. He lived in London, England, and one time the Times of London published an editorial that essentially asked the question and left that question dangling out there, what's wrong with the world? Well, Mr. Chesterton, in his very iconic style, wrote to them and said, Dear Sirs, what's wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Now, you may have heard that illustration used, but it's really, really right on target. It's really exactly what the problem is. I am the problem, and we have a problem. But you know, that's the very point of reminding ourselves that God sent a Savior at Christmas time. And so I want us to take a look at some things and connect a few ideas from the Old Testament, from the prophets, and take it all the way to the New Testament to the solution. So we read in Isaiah chapter 64, and it's one of the frequent passages that we refer to during this time of the year. But Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Now you can tell that's directed to God. And I'm reading from Isaiah 64, starting with verse 1, from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. Now, Isaiah was very clearly saying to God, we need your help. Well, isn't that what we should be saying to God today? We look for solutions in economics because an economist will tell us there's a problem. 
we look for societal solutions in sociology because a sociologist says, here's the problem, and so on and so on. But really, our need is for God to come down. And so Isaiah calls out to God, essentially what we should call out to God for today is, God, do something. Show us your presence and power. We need your help. And there are a number of things that pop up in here as we look through this that that remind us of important things. For example, he refers to mountains in here. Where he opens it up by saying, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Do you remember an incident where mountains quaked at the presence of God? Oh, there was. There was just such an incident. It's called... Sinai, when God gave his people the Ten Commandments, he came down and there was fire and smoke and earthquakes. There was a great demonstration of the power and presence of God. And so probably Isaiah is remembering that when he says this reference to the mountains. And of course, the fire was present at Sinai, but do you remember where else the fire was? Well, it was at the burning bush. And it's not an unusual thing for fire to represent the presence of God in the scriptures. But Moses really knew God was there when that bush burned and he heard God's voice. So when Isaiah makes these kinds of statements and and urges God to come down and talks about the fire and the earthquake, and he says, if you come down, the nations will tremble. Well, what was the result of God coming down to Moses and then Moses going to Egypt and God demonstrating his power and presence through the plagues? Well, the result was God's people were liberated from slavery. And God wants to liberate people today. And so when Isaiah says, do something, we need your help. Please come and do something. Then we resonate with that idea because we know what God has done and what he might do again. We also know from Isaiah earlier in the book that Isaiah had quite an encounter with God himself. So I want to turn to that passage now in Isaiah chapter 6, because in Isaiah chapter 6, God gives Isaiah a vision, and it profoundly changes things. Well, profoundly changes him. So when we ask God to come in fire and smoke and power and earthquakes, God sometimes comes to us, and he makes his presence known in ways we might not expect. But listen to what happened to Isaiah. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, Your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. 
See, throughout the Bible, there are repeated times when there's a problem and people cry out to God for help. It happened in the Old Testament. That was part of what we hear from the prophets when the people say to God, do something. We need you to come down and help us. We're in big trouble here. Well, they were, and God knew it, and he often came down to help. But he ultimately pointed to a future that we enjoy and to a solution that often starts with us. And so when Isaiah pleads for all of that, it's on the basis that God had already touched him and that God wants to make something really significant happen. God, do something. Show up. Now, the other thing that's very interesting is because we think about prophecy this time of the year in terms of it pointing to the coming of Jesus. We just don't always think of it in in its broader sense. For example, if you remember, we read in Isaiah 64, verse 1, it says, tear open the heavens and come down. That's Isaiah's plea to God. Well, God had come to Isaiah already, but Isaiah is still saying, tear open the heavens and come down. In other words, we need your help. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, for one thing, they believe that the heavens separated the earth from God. So that we understand. But here's what's really fascinating. If you read carefully and understand what's going on at the baptism of Jesus, fast forward to Mark chapter 1, the baptism of Jesus, What's really going on there when Jesus comes up out of the water after John has baptized him is God tears open the heavens, makes a hole, we might say, tears tears it apart so there's a hole, and the Holy Spirit of God comes down into Jesus. Notice Isaiah said, tear open the heavens. Well, God did tear open the heavens, and he came down in the person of Jesus, and he reinforced that coming with the coming down and into the person of Jesus of the Holy Spirit. So God is really up to something. And when we read something like Isaiah saying, tear open the heavens and come down, we can remind ourselves, oh, we do need help today. They needed help then. God has sent help. What might that mean for us now? See, that was the promise of a Savior. What might that mean? Well, we know that God sent a Savior. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That's what we anticipate when we look forward to December 24th, Christmas Eve, and Christmas Day, the celebration of the coming of Jesus. So the prophets both urged the people to get right and on behalf of the people cried out to God for help. God did touch the prophets in profound ways and use them as the solution to the problem. And now he is also giving us other words by the prophet that remind us that in so many ways that we sometimes forget our prayers have been answered. Because in Isaiah chapter 40, there is a real message of hope to God's people. Now here we are, same as them. We needed help. We need help today. We cry out to God, come down. And all the fire and the smoke imagery of God coming to Isaiah and then tearing open the heavens and coming down in the form of the Holy Spirit to infill the life of Jesus. And God is giving us a hint of that in Isaiah chapter 40. So we can begin to think, oh, so God does know we have a problem and he does know we need help and he is reminding us that he is helping we look back and we say, oh, he did help. 
we look forward and say, then he will help. Isaiah chapter 40, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare a way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Well, the comfort is for us as well as for them. Take comfort that God has and will help us. He is not unaware of what's going on. This was the promise of a Savior. Widely understood that this was Isaiah's message to us, that God would do something. He would come and save his people from their sins. He even uses language that describes the coming of a king. Prepare the desert a highway for our God. He talks about how things should be smoothed out so that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and everybody will see it. And God has promised it. And we rejoice in that realization. See, Advent is both anticipation and realization. We look back and we say, well, look what God has done. Isn't that something? Imagine if he did that already, what else he's about to do or will do when he's ready. I don't know how soon. I don't know how long. But God doesn't promise so he can just lead us along. He promises so he can live up to his promises. He promised a Savior. He did something about it. He knows we need help. He'll do something about it. But we need to recognize that our help and our hope comes from God, not from some other source, not from some other idea, not from an economist or a political solution or a sociological solution or a medical solution or any kind of other solution. Our hope comes from God. And God is doing something in his people today. The question is, do we want what God is doing? Do we really want someone to deliver us from our sins? See, in reading this and thinking back over this and recognizing what Isaiah has said and what God is doing in our day, we remember that both the past and the future of what's coming along. And all of that adds up to a hope for the future that that we can realize one day God is going to keep his fulfilling promise of a Savior. Jesus came and he's coming. And that's all part of the Advent celebration. That's all part of realizing what the prophets said. When God led his people out of Egypt, it was a clear demonstration that God delivers people from evil. And he wants to do that for us. And he shows us that example. And the prophets over and over, talk about that, both as a, a happening then, there's great references, frequent references to God delivering his people from Egypt, and there's the forward look that God will do things for his people in the future. And these were times that Isaiah was in of great distress, and they would ultimately, the people of God, go through exile. But even with all of that, even in the midst of all of that concern, God is saying, comfort my people. I'm doing something good. I've got something for you. And along comes the prophet Ezekiel, and he tells us something else about that story. 
not only does God give us hope that he hasn't abandoned us and he's coming to help us because he already did, but he gives us a different kind of hope for today. And you know, every now and then we need to say to each other, take heart, be encouraged. I think that's what we do when we go to church, as I mentioned earlier. But there's really a little bit more to that that God is doing and he wants to do for you, for all of us. In Ezekiel, there are a couple of verses that I just want to pull out because they say some very specific things that are helpful for us. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 11. And again, I'm still using the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. And this is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. God says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's a very tantalizing hint at what God is up to. You see, God, in a real interesting way, answers our prayer for help in a way we might not expect. In the same way that Messiah came in a way that people weren't prepared for in those days, he often comes to us to help us in ways that we don't expect. You know, Isaiah was the answer to the problem because he said, here am I, send me. God touched him and cleansed him and made him a whole new person and used him. You know, we want God to solve our problems and we hope for this getting better and that getting better. But God wants to solve our real problem. The problem that G.K. Chesterton mentioned, what's wrong with the world? I am. And so in Ezekiel, we see a beginning hint of what God is doing. He's saying, one day I'm going to change the hearts of my people. I'm going to give them a heart transplant so that they have a new heart so that they can follow me wholeheartedly. I think I should read that again so we don't miss that. You know, we, we tend to want God to solve all of our external problems, and God comes along and says, well, you know, if we get the inside right, then you can be part of the solution for the outside, essentially what he says. But he says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. Spirit. Sound like something we've read in the New Testament? Sounds like something that Jesus demonstrated when the Holy Spirit of God came down into him? Put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. In other words, when we have hard hearts, makes us difficult people to get along with and makes it difficult for us to follow God. He's going to give us a new heart so that they may follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. How many people struggle to follow God? How many people struggle to do what God wants? How many people, they just don't quite know how to, how to manage life and things that are going on. And, and so they they wrestle with this thing or another, and God says, I'm going to give them a new heart so that they can actually follow me. What, a, what an idea. What a promise. Could it be 
that God is actually coming to solve our problem that's on the inside, not necessarily our problem on the outside, recognizing that only when human hearts are changed will human circumstances get better. And make no mistake about it, the one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Some people think that a change of heart like the Bible describes is for the super spiritual. It's not. Some people think, well, there's only certain people that get that. No, it's for everybody. Some people think, well, if you knew how bad I was, well, I don't, but I know what, I know what the power of the gospel is, and it's not limited. And I would encourage you to lean in to what God is saying to you today. And let him make you holy and whole this season. I'm Pastor Rick. Thanks for being here. We'll be back next week.